What if you could have more fulfillment and ease in your professional and personal life and still be ambitious? Join me, Kathy Onetto, founder of Sustainable Ambition, for conversations with experts, authors, and friends on what it means to live with sustainable ambition. Learn concepts, tips, and tools to craft a fulfilling career on your terms while still being ambitious and avoiding burnout. For show notes from this episode, visit sustainableambition.com slash podcast. Now, let's learn more to help you craft your career to support your life from decade to decade. On to today's conversation. Welcome back, everyone. I'm so excited to be joined today by Ruth Gotian, author of The Success Factor, Developing the Mindset and Skill Set for Peak Business Performance. Ruth, welcome to the show. Hello, I'm so excited to be here. I'm really excited to dig into the book and your research. Uh, but before we get started, let me properly introduce you to everyone. So Ruth Gotian has for decades researched the most successful people of our generation, including Nobel laureates, astronauts, and Olympic champions, in order to understand what they do when the world isn't watching that ultimately put them in an elite class of people who achieved exceptional success. Based on this research, Ruth has uncovered the habits and practices of high achievers and teaches them to others through her keynotes, coaching, and workshops, and now her book. Ruth has been recognized by the journal Nature and Columbia University as a leadership expert with a focus on professional ascension. In 2021, she was recognized by Thinkers 50 as the world's number one emerging management thinker. Her writing has been featured in many publications, including Forbes, Harvard Business Review, and Scientific American. Ruth holds a bachelor's and a master's degree in business management and a doctorate in organizational adult learning and leadership. So Ruth, I'd love to actually start this conversation before we get into the book with actually hearing a little bit about your own career and what really drew you to this topic of high achievers and success? You know, in the book, you wrote how one of your mentors, Dr. Bert Shapiro, told you, do something important, not just interesting. And so you also write about in the book how it's important to find something you are interested in. And so you found success and those who achieved it interesting. It's held your attention. And so I'm curious, why did you feel this was an important topic to explore and really worthy of your attention? Why did I become obsessed with success? Uh, so I, I really don't believe anybody wakes up in the morning aiming to be average. I really think people want to be successful, but they're trying all these random things, waking up at five in the morning and reading eight hours a day and then wondering why it doesn't work. And where I worked, I was surrounded by incredibly, incredibly hardworking and intelligent people. I ran what's called a combined MD-PhD program, and it had a three and a half percent acceptance rate. So you have a better chance of getting into Stanford than you do this program. And some of our faculty members were Nobel Prize winners. And nationally, we were talking about what we call the leaky pipeline, people who trained and went to school and sacrificed so much for a career as a physician scientist, and then they would leave. They would leave. Now, to get into this program with a three and a half percent acceptance rate, can you just imagine what you had to be like in college 
that focus, that motivation, the numbers that you needed both in class and on the standardized tests and then the, the grit and resilience to get through it. But yet all of our focus was on those who were leaving. It was a topic of every annual national conference. Books were written about the topic. Articles were written about the topic. The National Institutes of Health actually developed a task force to look into this problem. And I was convinced that was the problem, but we were looking at the wrong problem. I actually thought the solution was not in how do we get them to stay. I thought the solution was on the other end of the spectrum. Those people whose work was so exceptional, because even in this program, there are those who float to the top. How can we make more of those people? Because if we get more of those people, they would more than make up for anybody who's leaving. And I could not get this topic out of my mind. I, I really thought we were ignoring what was right in front of us. So at the age of 43, while working full time and raising my family, I went back to school and I decided to study this. And I literally got my doctorate studying success. And it started with physician scientists. And I found out they all had these four elements. And then I continued and studied the astronauts and continued and studied CEOs and senior political officials and Olympic champions and NBA champions and NFL Hall of Famer and Tony Award winners. And I just keep going. I'm kind of obsessed with it now. <laughs> well, now as you talk about that and all these amazing people you get to interview and essentially research in a way, I can see what the appeal would be. It just sounds so fascinating to be able to hear from these people that are really operating at the top of their game. They they really are. And the way they look at it, I always tell them, I'm really not interested in your achievements. I could Google that about you. I don't need to talk about that. I'm much more interested in what it took to get there. And nobody talks to them about that. So for them, it was it was a great opportunity. Um, and I think they they enjoyed the different line of questioning. And because of that, because they were able to be so vulnerable with me and they trusted me with their story, that so many of them have become really good friends now, which is just really great because at the end of the day, they are real regular people, just like you and me. So they just figured out how to achieve a goal that they wanted. But the key is it was never the ultimate goal. It was a goal. There was always another goal after that. Mm, that's really interesting. I want to come back to that. And I'm also going to come back to this idea of people because it's a theme in your book as well. But I wanted, I also wanted to just start, Ruth, with this term success, because sometimes it can be a loaded word in our society, along with ambition, even though I'm pairing sustainable with ambition. Yeah. Like sometimes people bristle a little bit at what yeah. do you mean success and what do you mean ambition? And yet you also kind of talk to us about that you know, your research found that there are different definitions of success. So I was curious if you could tell us how you think about success or like how these individuals actually really define success. That was actually the, the first part of my research is my committee said I did three dissertations. <laughs> um, the first one was really to define success because we don't have a definition for success. Even within any one industry, there is no definition of success. So I really had to seek one out. And what really became 
clear to me was that everyone has a different definition of success, a different way of measuring success. There was also variation based on gender and rank, which is a whole other discussion for another time. Um, but that, that was definitely, that was different. But the definition I used after I, I, I asked people, that was, there were a lot of interviews and surveys, et cetera. And once I synthesized that information, my definition of success that I use for my research is that people who created a paradigm shift in the way we do things, think about things, process things. We are doing things differently because what of what they did. They have pushed their field forward in some way. That's the first thing. The second thing is as they have ascended, they pulled other people up with them. So they understood that a spotlight on someone else does not take away from the spotlight on them. They actually brought people up with them. And third, when they have reached a senior level in their career, they pay it forward. And it's usually by mentoring people either one-on-one or in large groups. And that was my definition of success. It wasn't about the size of your bank account and it was not about um, your popularity. So reality show stars are not featured in the book. Right. So um, that's how I define success. And to go back to your earlier question of do something important, not just interesting. I I think if, you know, high achievers are 400% more productive than an average employee. And with everyone leaving right now with our great resignation, we need to reimagine which employees we are focusing on, which employees we want to focus on, which employees we want to develop, where do we want to pour our resources? So I was not expecting the great resignation. I was not expecting the book to come out just in the midst of it, but the timing is perfect. Mm. Yeah. I mean, so it's so a lot, so interesting in what you just shared. And I, I mean, before we move on from this idea of success, I did also just want to ask you, because I think you noted in the book, and correct me if I'm wrong, but that you that success can change depending on our stage in career. And maybe it is those three stages that you just mentioned, that as somebody like is further along in their career, like they're paying it forward or they're bringing people yeah. up. Is that what you meant by like, hey, success can change in our career? Because I think for me, when I think about sustainable ambition, I, I certainly talk about that. I think our ambitions can ebb and flow and change over time as well. But how did, how did you think about that? Well, I think the definitions change because our desires change, our focus change, and our needs change over time, right? So, you know, even when I'm writing the book, for example, right, because that's something that's related to what I'm doing now. First, it was to write a good book. It wasn't going to be sloppy. It was be a good, well-researched book that was well-written and well-edited, That was the first step. I did that. Well, now I want it to be a bestseller, Mm. right? And then after that, I want to write another book and I want that book to be a best. So when I was first writing the book proposal, I had no ambition to make it a bestseller. I mean, it would be nice if it happened, right? But if you think about it, look at all the scientists when they start out doing research, they don't think they're going to get the Nobel. When somebody first starts in a sport, they don't think they're going to be an Olympian, right? But as you get closer and closer, 
that becomes the new goal. First to be an Olympian, then to be a medalist, then to be a gold medalist, then to be world champion, then to, you know, whatever it is. So the goals change, especially as you get closer to it. Yeah, this piece was really interesting to me that you talked about in the book. And I think Marshall Goldsmith, who writes the foreword for your book, also talked about this, where he said, like, most highly successful people never imagined they become this acclaimed yeah. person in their field. And I thought it was interesting because I've also heard other things where people say, you know, some, some ambitious people are quite clear that they have an ambition, you know, like Victoria Beckman in a book has been said to, has said like, I want to be as famous as Purcell, which is a laundry detergent, like tied, you know, in, in the UK or Michael Bublé, who said, I'm going to be the next Frank Sinatra. You know, some people are very focused or like an Oprah or Arnold Schwarzenegger who have said, you know, they knew they were destined for great things, but that wasn't the case in what you found. And, and it, it seemed like it started more with them getting interested and excited about an area of focus and a pursuit. That's exactly right. And I don't think that getting that top spot was ever really their main focus. That was part of the journey. And I think that's why, in fact, I always ask the Olympians to show me their medals when we're done. And it's really funny because this one has it in a safe. This one has it in a box under the bed. This one has it in the nightstand drawer. Another one had it in a brown paper bag in the sock drawer. And I thought it was odd. Only two of them had it on display. And they said to me, it was never about the metal. That's a chapter in my life, not the entire story. Mm. And that's why it was never about the metal. And that's why it's not on display. And if you ask most of the Olympians, they don't have it on display. Fascinating. And, and so what would they say it's about? It was just the achievement for themselves or meeting some type of physical goal or something to that degree? To see if they could do it. Uh, this was their goal. And they wanted to see if they were able to achieve it. Mm. And then they want to know it wasn't a fluke. They wanted to achieve it again. Scott Hamilton, the figure skater, right? He won the gold medal in 1984. He's the one who did backflips. Mm -hmm. After... He won the Olympic gold medal. He did not hang up his sp his skates. He went because it was a tie and it was, you know, they had to break the tie based on one particular event, the figures. He went to the world championships because he wanted to beat Brian Orser fair and square so that there would be no question about it. <laughs> and now he's doing other things. And he did, you know, the, the professional shows on ice and now he raises money for cancer. There's always other things that they're working on. Yeah, it's really interesting. You, I think you write about this where you say that people are kind of like, well, I just need to know if I could do it. I just want to try. Yeah. I at least yeah. want to go for it and just see what's possible. Right. And I, I hear right. that from a lot of other people as well that, you know, that, well, what's the, what can I lose? I'd rather try and see if it's possible. That's right. And one of the quotes that keeps coming up, which is also the quote Whenever anyone asks me to sign their copy of the book, The Success Factor, this is the quote I always put before I sign my name. So all high achievers fear not trying mm. more than they fear failing. Mm. Because they said, as long as nobody dies, I have to try. So they try. Right. I mean, look at Devin Harris. He was one of the original Jamaican bobsledders, the one the movie Cool Runnings was all about. They're from Jamaica a Caribbean island. There's no snow. There's no ice. But yet he tried 
And his other teammates tried so hard. They had never even seen a bobsled. They had to rent one at the Olympics. They didn't even have one. They had to rent one from the Canadians, but they wanted this so badly. They wanted to see if they could do it. And they tried. And Devin Harris is afraid of speed and heights, but yet he did it for three Olympics. Wow. Wow. That's pretty amazing. And so that's a great mantra for people to carry forward with them. And, you know, you talk about this really being the importance of it being a journey and that, you know, regardless of the goal and the definition of success, high achievers, you had shared, shared a mindset and then also an approach. And there were kind of four core areas. And one of the things we've been talking about is this mindset. And you talk about intrinsic motivators versus extrinsic rewards. And I'm wondering if you can, that's a kind of a little bit of a technical term. I'm a geek in this area, so I kind of know what that means, but I'm curious if you can share with people, because this mindset piece and kind of, we talked about it again at the beginning, like what's interesting to you, what holds your attention? Where do you want to put your focus and, 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 uh, put some effort against, but how do you, how should people think about intrinsic rewards? So intrinsic motivation is that fire from within. The reason that you do the work that you do, what you would do for free if you could, that fire in your belly. It's the reason you wake up in the morning, the reason you have a hard time shutting your mind off at night. You love to do it. And when you're working on it, you get into what we call a state of flow. You're so into it. Time just melts away and you're not tired. You're not hungry. You're not unfocused. You are super focused and you are at your happiest. Now, Remember I said you would do this for free if you could. Now, extrinsic motivation, those are the diplomas, the awards, the bonuses, the certificates, the rewards, the recognitions. It's when other people are judging us. And when other people are judging us, that's really hard to maintain that motivation. That's really, really hard. But when it comes from within, there is nothing anyone can do to put out that fire. And if anything, we're always looking for ways to pour gasoline on that fire. Mm. I love that. And I think it's, it's one of the things I talk about with sustainable ambition, because it's kind of like, you know, it's not going to be sustainable if you're running after somebody else's kind of rewards, essentially, is yeah. part of what you're talking about. And it's interesting, though, Ruth, because I was just listening to a podcast with somebody who was kind of pushing, now granted, she comes from like a labor kind of perspective and she was kind of pushing back a little bit on this notion that our work should should be our, the end all be all for people. And that perhaps instead of it, so many of us trying to make it our calling, it should be a job and we should have things outside of our work to kind of fulfill us. And yet I, I can understand that in some respects. And I kind of think not all of us are wired the same. That might be good yeah. for, for some of us and work best for some of us. But I'm like, wow, we, most of us spend at least eight to nine hours a day working. And if it's just like, I have to, not a want to, or there's not some element of intrinsic motivation in one's day, I could see that being really painful and difficult, like you're saying, to maintain that motivation. And even if you have those outside pursuits to actually then show up to get your paycheck all the time. So do you have any reaction to that or that type of thinking? It's so true. And that's why when you, 
you are working, you need to find what it is that you love doing. And one of the things that I work with people on, and it's actually a, a something that you can download with the book. You can also download it from my website. Um, it's a passion audit. A passion audit really helps you figure out what it is that you love to do. And there's a difference between what you're good at and what you love to do. And when you can take ownership over something, that's when you're at your happiest. And there's actually been research out of the Mayo Clinic that says you only need to spend 20% of your time doing what it is that you love in order to reduce burnout. Mm. That's it, 20%. That's not a lot. That's not a lot. You could find 20%. (laughs) Yeah, I was curious about that research. I was going to ask you about that because I noted that from the book that you said you only need to spend 20%. And what where what was that? Can you say a little bit more about that research and kind of how they tie that then to like, you know, or how people should just think about applying that into their days? So 20%, if you think about the work week, right, of five days, only one of those days you're working on something that you truly love doing. Now, there are different ways and the passion audit will really help you figure out what are the things that you love doing. And then there's conversations that happen to figure out how it is that you can infuse that into your day. So if you're the creative person, if you're the the person who likes to do mentoring, if you're the kind of person who likes to do professional development or team building, how can you infuse that into your work week? So that would reduce burnout and actually make you happier. And if your listeners want to download their own passion audit, by all means, they can go right to my website, ruthgotian.com slash passion audit, one word. Perfect. And I will, of course, capture that in the show notes. That's great. And I, I think this is important to Ruth, this idea of the passion audit, because one of the things and listeners, so hopefully this don't, you'll uh, go with this with me, which is like sometimes our rail against using the term passion. And the only reason being Ruth, that sometimes when it's talked about, you don't talk about it in this way. This is why I want to bring it up and get your perspective, which is it can sound singular or that there's only one passion for you. And Mm -hmm. one of the things also is that I think people get stuck because they think there's this you know, only one path that they're going to find. And it's, they're on this quest and this search and they never find it. And one of the things that you also speak about is that, well, it also can take some time to find it. So can you say a little bit about how you think about passion? Because I think it's a more um, embraceable and kind of realistic way of thinking about it. It does take time. And the other thing to recognize is that it changes over time. And it especially changes when you're faced with transitions in your life. So if you have a new job, a new place to live, a new partner, a new child, something changed in your life, that's a good time to redo the passion audit because what was important to you in the past may not be a priority right now. And that's one of the things that we saw during the pandemic. The workaholics who were all in before just stop cold turkey. They did not want to do it anymore, right? We had transitions in our life and that's what you're seeing with all the people who are leaving their jobs right now is 
they just had a change in passion. They had a realization of their change in passion. I think the passion was always there. Mm. I've done these passion audits with countless people. I have done it with myself as well. And I very often find that people in the wrong are in the wrong occupation. Interesting. They're doing what they're good at. It's not what they love though. Mm. Mm. And there's a big difference. And look, I used to work in finance. I was good at it. Mm. I didn't like it. Mm. I yeah. love what I'm doing now though. <laughs> well, and you, you can hear it in your voice and I can, I can see you. So I can see it on your face as well. Um, well, this is one of the things I wanted to talk about too, was, you know, the second part coming into approach. And you talk about how these individuals have a strong work ethic and perseverance. And I think this is an interesting thing to talk about given today, we're talking about burnout. We're talking about coming out of the pandemic and a quote that I just, or a section um, that I want to just take out of the book, you say, those who focus on high achievement do their best to control their environment and recognize their success is dependent on their effort, persistence, and initiative. Yeah. They outwork everyone. Mm-hmm. And yet in today's culture, right, I, you know, you're not the only one to kind of say this. There are a lot of people that will say mm-hmm. success comes with hard work. And yeah. I think there's some truth to that. But in today's culture too, everyone's kind of, because people are burnt out and rightfully so, like people are pushing back against it a little bit, or yep. people have kind of gotten into the hustle culture. And I'm kind of curious what you think people might be getting wrong around this. Cause it's not really about the hard work I would imagine. No. So I I've known about burnout for a long time because the guy who coined it in 1975 or so was my cousin, Dr. Herb Freudenberger. So I have known about burnout before I ever knew what work was, right? It was one of the first books I, I have I read. Um, but it's not about putting in the long hours. That's not what this is about. And this is why I say we can't copy people's habits, but we can emulate their mindsets. So we've all heard about all these super successful people who wake up at five o'clock in the morning. It's not waking up at five o'clock in the morning that has made them so successful. What has made them so successful is what they do when they wake up. Now, if you are a night owl and you don't go to bed until two o'clock in the morning, you're not going to wake up at five o'clock in the morning and be functional. It's just not going to work. But understanding how they spend their time during their day is quite enlightening. And that is what we need to learn to leverage. So I talk about in the book, I talk about optimizing your peak performance hours. Mm. So everyone knows if they're a morning person or a night owl, you're, you're usually either one or the other. And that's when you do your best work. I am definitely a morning person. Absolutely. My best writing comes in the morning. So anything that requires deep focus, deep thought, deep creativity, and solo work is done in the morning for me. The other tasks, the Zoom meetings, podcast interviews, um, responding to emails, having conversations with people, that does not require the same level of focus, of hyper-focus. So I save those for the afternoon when I'm a little bit more sluggish, a little tired, not as sharp. My writing's not gonna be good then. So I save that for the afternoon. And by doing that, 
you are actually much more productive. You get a lot more done in less amount of time. And then within those peak performance hours, how do you optimize that? So there's actually a work, rest, work, rest, work, rest flow, which I talk about in the book as well, because you cannot work for three hours straight and expect hour three to be as good as hour one, unless there are things that you do in between. So those are the things I teach with every single one of the elements of success. I actually teach you how to implement it in your life under your terms. So if you are a morning person or a night owl, you still have peak performance hours and you could still leverage those peak performance hours. So it's not about working more hours. It's about getting more out of the hours that you work. Mm, I love that. And I think that's so helpful for people to hear. And I know that's come up before on the podcast with a few folks in terms of really just getting clear on when do you work best and optimizing for that. I think for some people that work in organizations, this, this to me is a big potential unlock during this time of redefining work and how we're going to work and work arrangements, because I think companies need to figure out how to allow for this, how to allow people to optimize for their peak performance hours. Because right now, most companies kind of like, you got to be in a meeting when you got to be in a meeting and people aren't always being good about, depends on your role and depends on a lot of other factors, but huge, I think, if people can kind of unlock this. Very Um, much so. Yeah. I was curious too, around this idea of these high achievers. So you talked about like, okay, well, it's not about working more hours per se. It's about optimizing how you use those hours. And yet I I feel like if people who kind of lean in, who are are high achievers may, well, I'm curious if they also thought about how do they sustain themselves over time as opposed to just in the moment? Like, did people have kind of rules around or not rules or, or just ways that they thought about recovery, say, or if they have kind of an intense period, like, is there a time for kind of Okay, now to, how, do, how do I rejuvenate myself? Absolutely. And they are actually really, really, really good at that. And it doesn't matter if you're a scientist or an athlete, they are both really good at it. They have intense times and then break times. And these people realize that the rest time is as important as the peak work times. Because if they want to get to their peak work times, they have to rest in between. Why do you think they, because it's interesting, I've been starting to interview people who are doing long distance kind of endurance events, and I've done them myself in the past. And it's just very well known that you can't train at an intense level all the time and that you have to vary the degree of training that you have and that you also have to have rest periods. And yet when it comes to our life or leaning into our work, we often miss that. And I've been talking to people recently about taking vacations and the fact that we still stay dialed in, you know, and it's kind of like, we don't really ever truly allow for that, that downtime. So are there in the work that you've done with professionals and perhaps not just like athletes, like, do you, what do you see that people kind of might get wrong around this or what gets in the way of us allowing ourselves these downtimes. So I think especially early on in our careers, we feel we're always going to miss out on something, right? It's that fear of missing out, of missing out on an opportunity. Somebody's going to take it away from us. We're not going to know about it. We can't make sure that we grab onto it. 
that just doesn't work. Mm. And I think what happens is as you get more senior, you realize how ridiculous some of this really is. Mm. The people Mm. who are there, who are going to try to take it away from you, they're going to do it if you're there or not. Mm. Interesting. Interesting. So you might as well take the downtime. (laughs) You have to, you have to. Right, right, right. Well, I also found it interesting. So the third area that you talked about was just this idea of solid foundation and fundamentals. And I thought this was kind of interesting because it made sense to me, this idea of kind of, especially for athletes that like, or say even like a musician, where it's kind of like, you always go back to doing your scales to kind of get honed in. Um, But I was kind of curious like in other types of corporate applications, like how do people think about what their fundamentals are? So I I share the story of Neil Katyal, who is an attorney who has argued 45 cases before the Supreme Court. And while he was doing that, you know, I I asked him, I said, Neil, how do you prepare for a case before the Supreme Court? I mean, he's done more than any minority lawyer in the United States. And he said, well, I do three things. He said, I prepare a binder that has the answer to every possible question that I might get asked. And he said, I bring that into the courtroom and put it on the table right in front of me. And he said in 45 cases, he's never had to open that binder, but just preparing it has prepared him for the case. That's number one. Number two is he has moot courts. Moot courts are like simulated court environments. He's done 15 of them in the early days when he was first arguing before the Supreme Court. Now he does about five. The point is he's still doing them, right? And last but not least, the night before the opening arguments, his kid's bedtime story becomes the opening arguments of the case because he figured if the kids can understand it, the court will understand it. And he has done those same three practices for every single one of those 45 cases before the Supreme Court. The Nobel Prize winners, the day they get the Nobel Prize, they talk to the press, they have all that, and then they go about their day. It's either teaching or submitting grants or having a lab meeting. They are still doing their routine. Right. So, I mean, in that, it sounds like that's the the practice or the takeaway for us is like to figure out what our routines are, what those fundamentals are for us to keep us kind of functioning Mm -hmm. and operating at our best. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, one of the last topics I also wanted to just cover was that one of the core things I really took away from the book is just how important people are across these dimensions of a foundation or fundamentals, or you talk about lifelong learning. Um, and you, you talk about like who you surround yourself by seems to really matter. Right. Um, you talk about the fact that high achievers surround themselves with other high achievers, You talk about how learning from others is really critical and you devote a lot of time in the book to writing about mentorship. So I was wondering if you can share, like, what are your thoughts on just how important people are and then why mentorship is so important? So I think that, I don't think, I know, the high achievers very quickly realized that they don't have all the answers. More importantly, they realized that they don't know what they don't know. And as a result, they needed to find the people who do know. So they would seek out those people and it didn't matter if those people were senior to them or junior to them. And every single one of the high achievers I have spoken with surrounded themselves with a team of mentors who believed in them more than they believed in themselves. Every single one of them. 
So if the Nobel Prize winners and astronauts and Olympic champions are doing it, why are we doing it? Why do we think we're better than Nobel Prize winners and astronauts and Olympic champions? So we have to surround ourselves with people who can guide us and help us and take our blinders off and teach us new things. And a team of mentors is one of the great ways to do it. And the research on mentorship is crystal clear. Those who are mentored out-earn and outperform those who are not mentored and report lower cases of burnout. It's all there. Yeah, it's really amazing. I mean, if you were to leave some folks with some tips around mentorship, you know, where would you point them? Because one of the things I also just I'll throw in around this that I really love that you mentioned in the book is how mentorship can really take different forms as well. Yeah. And I think we really think about mentoring just in this one very narrow view. Right. I, and I think uh, we have to really open our mind to consider who are our mentors. Why do we consider those people our mentors? I do teach in the book how to find mentors, how to approach them. I will say you never ask someone to be your mentor ever um, because that really, that's asking them to take on another job, another responsibility, and nobody really wants to do that. So instead, I offer different sentence starters that you can do to and use in order to really ignite that conversation. Because at the end of the day, you're looking to build a relationship and you're looking for ways to get someone to know, like, and trust you. And you need to have a conversation that starts over a common thread that you have with that person. And if I can find a common thread with astronauts, Olympic champions, and Nobel Prize winners, you can find common threads with anyone. Mm. It doesn't have to be much. It could be the color. It could be the trophy in the background. It could be, I had conversations over someone's royal blue glasses. It's my favorite color. It's the cover of my book, right? So when I see something in royal blue, I have to make a comment about it. And that's how we kicked it off. That's how I kicked it off with an Olympian. Yeah, that's really amazing. And you talk about also in the book how having actually don't look for people that are just one note in terms of um, that's correct. finding a mentor. You really want these broad perspectives. So it's really great. So as you're hearing, everyone, like there's a lot of great tips and tools in the book. So I encourage you to check it out. And again, I'll capture links to it in the show notes. I just had two final questions for you, Ruth. One is just going back to the fact that you decided that this was an interesting question and an important one at 43 and went and got your PhD and have, you know, kickstarted this next phase of what you're invested in right now and you are very jazzed about. And I'm, you know, a lot of people get to different stages of their careers where they're kind of like, what is next? And they're not mm. sure where to point themselves. And I'm wondering, like, for you, what I take away is like, look to that intrinsic motivator, find something really interesting and important to go explore. Um, because a lot of people get to these stages and say, I just don't know. And I'm kind of like, well, look at Ruth, like, see what she found something that really caught her attention. But if people are kind of at that stage, is that where you'd point them? Or do you have some other thoughts? No, you're right. And you really need to think about it. And, and it's really of what do you, it's not just what you want to do. It's what do you never want to do again? Mm. Or what do you never want to feel again? And I knew I wanted to study success. I knew originally I wanted to study it with physician scientists. And I thought I was going to create a predictive model. And actually five years earlier, someone said to me, why don't you get your doctorate? Because something I wanted to do required a doctorate. And I had no interest. 
I said, I don't, I don't have the time. I don't have the bandwidth. I really don't want to write a 200 page dissertation. And then one day I did. One day I had a question. I just could not stop. It was nagging at me. And when I thought I was going to do a predictive model of success to figure out how we can go from, you know, three and a half percent to 1% acceptance rate, right. Um, By using some sort of predictive model, my mentor, Dr. Bert Shapiro, that's when he said to me, and he's a good mentor because he didn't tell me what to do and what not to do. He just opened the door by saying, do something important, not just interesting. And when he said that, it really switched it from a local study to a national study. And I realized while a predictive model would be kind of cool, it wasn't exactly earth shattering. Mm. And if I was at that stage of my life going to do something, it was going to be earth shattering. Mm. And that really then made it to originally a national study. Now it's an international study with all of these other groups in it. And it's, it's probably my life's work now because I'll never finish studying. There's always more people to study. Right. Right. So, um, there's, there's always more to do and you never know where it'll take you. Right. And it's kind of interesting to follow that curiosity and that path. And like you said, the goals kind of expand as you kind of get further along. And it's almost as if you, it goes back to that journey metaphor that you said, you have to trust the journey. Yeah. Yeah. Well, with that, Ruth, this has been a wonderful conversation. I love the book. I love the research. I will continue to go back to it. Is there just a final thought that you would like to leave our listeners with around achieving success for themselves? Oh, thank you. I want to know if your your copy of the book is all tabbed out. People have been sending me pictures of the book all tabbed out. It is for stickers. sure tabbed out See? and marked in and yes, <laughs> and notes you in the have, back. <laughs> you have to send me a picture of that because people are sending me pictures of the book with post-it notes sticking out of it and tabs sticking out of it and notes in the margin. And I want to tell you that just makes me so excited because there are other books about success, but I wanted a book about success that people could use, that it's relevant to each person's life. That's what I aim to do so that you can customize it to your life. And there's a buffet of options for each one of the four elements. So if it doesn't work for you now, it might work for you the next time you have a transition. And what works for you is not going to work for me. So we have all these options. We know from research that adults like options. So that's really what I try to do. I really hope people enjoy the success factor. It's, it's really, it's a book for anyone who does not want to be average. Mm. Mm, I love that. And so do you, you mentioned your website again earlier and I will capture it in the show notes. Do you want to just mention again where people can find you, Ruth? Sure. So my website is ruthgotian.com, G-O-T-I-A-N. And anywhere in the world that you are, you could find links for the book on ruthgotian.com slash book, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Target, Walmart. It's independent bookstores. It's all there. Um, and, uh, all the social media is just my name, Ruth Gotian is only one. Perfect. Wonderful. Well, I hope people will check it out. This has been a wonderful conversation. Thanks again, Ruth, for being on with me and sharing all this 
fabulous research. I'm a little jealous of all the people you get to talk to. So, um, so wonderful. I'm going to live vicariously through you and continue to follow your research as you talk with these amazing individuals that are really, as you said, pushing, frankly, our world forward and based on how you've defined success. And that includes you. So thank you again. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Sustainable Ambition Podcast. I hope you take away at least one learning or inspiration from today's conversation. Find more inspiring interviews and get show notes for this episode at sustainableambition.com slash podcast. Make sure you don't miss an episode or my insider tips, guides, and tools by signing up for Sustainable Ambition Forum, my twice monthly newsletter. Sign up at sustainableambition.com slash subscribe. And remember, it's not about finding work-life balance. It's about building work-life resilience. Thanks again for joining me. Speak with you next time.